Welcome to the Athlete Story Podcast, your chance to tap into wisdom from athletes and experts in world-class sports. You are about to be taken into a chat about sports careers and related issues between an awesome guest and your listening host, the sports insider, repurposed Olympic mogul skier, and former freeride world tour athlete, Anya Balbia. Hi, you are in for an inspirational athlete story about pivoting into life after sports when you have no choice but to do so. You can say that it's about seeing opportunities and challenges and all this, but only that's a ridiculous understatement in this case. Today's athlete story comes from adventure athlete Matt Wetchler, who woke up to a very different reality, to say the least, than what his life had been based on until then, when he woke up from a deathly accident that he had while body surfing. It actually took his life for 10 minutes and his mobility from the neck down for quite a bit longer than that. And even though today he has gained quite a lot of mobility, it has changed his circumstances and perspectives in a way that has transformed his life, but not who he is. And I think that's the essential message that we can all learn from Matt's story. As you will hear, he did not let outside circumstances like his sports awards, his powder award, his Stanford education, or his work as a medical doctor, nor his paralysis define who he is. And this is very relevant for anyone who stands in the middle of or or in front of a big transition in life, because those circumstances can change and they will change. (laughs) In particular, for any athlete, since your athletic career can only last for so long, and you know this, right? Matt's story is an inspiration on how there are so many different ways to express yourself as long as you know who you are and and what you stand for. Even if you can no longer do what it is that has fulfilled you in your life up until now, that is why I think this is such an important story to share with you as athletes. This is Athlete Story and I'm your host Anya Bolvia. If you want to get notified whenever I upload a new show, do go ahead and subscribe to the show. I'll be posting lots more athlete stories, interviews with world class sports insiders and experts, and valuable tips for athletes. If there were such a thing as a gold medal at winning in life, Matt Wetchler would definitely be having one. So let's welcome the multi-talented life winner. Matt Wetchler. Hi, Anya. Hi, Matt. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you, Anya. I'm so glad you could make it. I appreciate that. So, Matt, you have been involved in sports pretty much all of your life, right? Correct. In one way or the other. Can't quit it. <laughs> Something happened last year that changed that, but it seems like not totally. I woke up two days later in an intensive care unit now paralyzed from the shoulders down. In those first hazy moments, I had a strange thought. I knew that my body was irrevocably altered and by extension my life, I had no idea what was going to happen next. But I was certain I would make art. If you can take us back to a little bit of your your background story as an athlete and and some of the sports you've been involved in. Yeah, absolutely. I've done a lot of things in my life, but my deepest identity, I would always say, is is as an athlete. And that athletic identity has been kind of the bedrock for almost anything else I've done in my life. And so it's very meaningful to me. You know, in early high school and into college, I was um, a competitive rower. I rowed at a national level with um, some club teams and was second in the country a few years in the row in multiple events at nationals. 
and uh, it was kind of slotted for like a pre-Olympic training program. But for reasons of where I was going to school at the time that didn't offer rowing, I was essentially training on my own, like doing two-a-days <laughs> just <laughs> solo uh, for months and on end. And then I would link up with this training program in the summer and we would travel and compete. And so after about five years of that, I was completely toasted and um, kind of let go of rowing. But um, after college, I moved out to Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which is a big ski town and was a uh, ski instructor for a year and then just kind of gave in to the, the call of the wild, so to speak. And I mean, I've been skiing since I could walk and uh, just decided to try to become a professional free skier. And so I was uh, sponsored and traveled up and down the coast and over to New Zealand skiing pretty much year round for several years working with filmers and photographers and had in 2006 won the Powder Magazine Video Award for Best Natural Air, which was a front flipping 360 off of a 60 foot cliff back at a time where people weren't doing that. So Cork 7, you know, now because of where equipment is and, and sort of the path laid by early, early skiers, it's much more common. But at that time, I'd say only one other skier had done something like that, which is Seth Morrison. The legendary <laughs> Seth Morrison. <laughs> exactly, which we're all familiar with. Yeah, those just epic backflips. <laughs> um, and so, you know, Seth had uh, done, uh, made it a couple attempts in Alaska the year before, which were captured on Ski Movie 2, and I think that was like around 2003 or four. And uh, a few of us out in Jackson were really just saw this thread of um, progressive skiing in the backcountry and kind of let go of everything else and just pursuing it aggressively, trying to land switch off of cliffs and um, do these multi-air lines with technical rotations in the middle of it. And like I said, well, now it's quite commonplace at that time. It was a, a small step forward. I ended up injuring myself in, uh, I think, 2006. And while I had loved skiing, I realized that, you know, maybe there was other aspects of my life that I've been saying no to almost unthinkingly because, mm -hmm. you know, one of the, the good and bad thing about an athletic mentality is you focus yeah. And, you know, everything else falls to the wayside and it's just this one thing. And, and that allows us to reach a, a pinnacle of performance. But also, you know, if we step back away from that mentality, you realize that we've been closing a lot of other doors. And so kind of as um, a life experiment, I said, hey, you know, if I wasn't so militant about needing to ski next season, what would be possible? I ended up meeting a woman who was from Pakistan and accepting an invitation. And I moved to India and lived in the slums of New Delhi for a year. And I volunteered with women and children. And that was a crazy experience, very challenging. Did you go with a specific purpose or you just... Yeah, you know, so what had happened is I had injured myself and uh, instead of like sitting on a couch watching movies and taking pain meds, I had, you know, I, I'm always, uh, I have a hyperactive mind and uh, had been artistic almost all my life. And so I started painting again. And I uh, ended up starting a contemporary artist cooperative with a few other artists in the town of Jackson. And then also started working with kids. I ran a bunch of art-based teen programs out of a center 
and just really enjoyed helping other people. Like just that act of thinking outside of myself, thinking about others and making others' well-being a focus. It just felt good in this very fundamental way. I was also reading a lot of spiritual texts at the time, a lot of Eastern spirituality and philosophy. Just whenever I get into something, I really get into something. And I had briefly been to India in college just for a week. Mm-hmm. It, I mean, it, it flipped my world around. I figured, hey, if a week there can do that to me, what would a year do? Mm-hmm. When this opportunity came up, you know, which was just a, I literally met this woman on an elevator, like a 30 second conversation in elevator turned into a three hour conversation at my office at the teen center. And then a few emails later, I had this opportunity to volunteer at a small nonprofit in New Delhi. I decided to go for it and just sold most of my very meager belongings to get the, uh, to get the cash to do it. And while I was there, decided that helping people was very important to me. And I wanted to make a career out of it. My dad had been a doctor. And so I never wanted to be a doctor. (laughs) You know, but I was by that time, a little bit older and more mature and and sort of came to the idea of medicine authentically. Uh And I liked the fact that it had at its core the effort of helping others. And so after about a little under a year in India, I cut my stay short and came back and started studying to go to med school. You know, I was a philosophy and art major, which my parents were so excited about. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> you know, just, yeah, just ready to take over the business world with that combination. You know, so I'd never taken a science class. So I had to start literally from ground zero. But I did a, a program that got all of those classes done in a year and then managed to get into med school after one round of applications. About 10 years later from that decision, I did become a doctor. During that time, uh, going back to the athletics, I still couldn't quit it. And I went into ultra endurance sports. And so I competed in iron distance triathlons. So I did two sprints, and then I did an iron distance. (laughs) And for those who do the iron distance, my time was uh, 9.44, I think. So sub 10 which I'm proud of. <laughs> um, yeah, I placed, I think, 17th out of 700 in my first my first attempt. You're like a multi-talented athlete, <laughs> an artist, <laughs> you're a medical doctor. This is true, yeah. So uh, is this all like curiosity driven or how? Yeah, I mean. Is it fear of missing out? <laughs> right, fear of commitment, maybe. <laughs> So while the surface looks different, you know, whether like practicing art or or doing a sport or studying something academic, the mentality is the same, which is really a curiosity, a curiosity of what my personal capacity is. I think that is the fundamental orientation of an athlete. You know, you talk about, well, what does it take to perform at the highest levels? At some point, I think you have to stop comparing yourself to others, and it's really a a relationship with yourself. A lot of people don't get that. They spend a lot of time thinking about what other people are doing. Once you can let go of that fear of, you know, how am I in relationship to others and reorient yourself, like what am I in relationship to myself and my own abilities? That orientation, I think, is much healthier, much more productive, and also unlocks our abilities in any in any direction. For example, um, when I transitioned back to school to get into med school, 
I knew that I was like, you know, I might not be the smartest person and I definitely don't have the academic background to do this, but I know that I can put in the effort. Mm-hmm. Like I know that I can train. You had the determination. Yeah, exactly. And I just made the commitment. I said, you know what? I, I will be the person that puts in the most time. <laughs> and so I, you know, and I did, I studied, you know, six, seven days a week, 12 hours a day. I studied actually so much that changed my eyesight. (laughs) And uh, yeah, and then a year later, I I managed to get the grades together to get into school. Was there a point where you had like kind of a burnout from studying so much? Right. You know, so early on, I mean, I think the fire was very, very hot early on. And I'd say that um, mentality of like, I'm just going to push myself. I'm going to put in the time mm-hmm. and I'm going to put in the effort. And this is going to be not about trying to get a better test score than somebody else, but just trying to be the best that I can in this new world mm-hmm. and in defining what that means to me, not by somebody else's definition, but by my own definition. And, um, I would say that I held to that mentality for about two years and then it really started to have a dark side where I reached exhaustion. And I think this is a a great lesson for any athlete as well. Like there is a shadow side to the athletic mentality in that many meaningful projects we have in our life are marathons rather than sprints. When you hear about stories of success, often they are told in retrospect and they're told in a way that makes it seem Like there was this moment where a project started in a garage and then all of a sudden it was this exponential growth and skyrocketing to success. Mm -hmm. But the real story is often that there is a flare of excitement and then there's the trek through the desert where there's so much uncertainty and you're never given the, you're never given the gift of complete success or complete failure because either would be easy. Even like a complete failure is a gift. It's like, oh, well, that definitely doesn't work. You know, often you get the half success where you're like, "Mm, you know, last month worked and this month not so much. And that is really trying. And I think having a framework that orients us to survive that trek through the desert to get to the success, which will happen if we are persistent. That requires a little bit of a different framework Um, other than I'm going to dig deep. I'm going to leave it all in the field. I'm going to give it 110%, which is, I think, the classic old school mentality. And we tend to forget that there's phases. And there's a phase where that mentality works really well and it will take you this far. But then Mm -hmm. you're going to transition into a new phase. And then the the Mm -hmm. famous saying that what took you here is not going to take you there, whatever. Yeah, exactly. I think that idea of seeing as a different phases, those frameworks are different tools. They each have their own time and place. Regardless of what you're doing, you know, you're going to find yourself in a moment where there is a deadline. Mm -hmm. You know, you do have to redline it and push and and kind of dig deep. I'll say the uh, kind of traditional athletic mentality can serve you well. But if that is your only tool to success, I think it will fail you in the long run. You'll exhaust yourself and you won't have the endurance to just hang around for success to come naturally for um, whether it's a following to grow or to build enough expertise where you are valuable in a new industry. And the trick for that is less about just unyielding intense effort and more about 
emotional perseverance, being able to wake up each day and put in a solid effort, but in a way that is sustainable. Yeah. That's been my personal evolution and how I have harnessed the energy of an athlete into something that has served me well in other pursuits. And really, I think we should just get in into that right away because uh, you had an accident um, when you were out surfing last year um, yeah that changed a lot of things for you right you want to tell about that yeah so a couple years ago I finally finished residency and I became a doctor so that was a decade-long effort and with its own challenges and then a little bit under a year later I was um, body surfing by my house and I broke my neck and uh, drowned. And somebody, a stranger found me floating face down in the water, paralyzed and um, unconscious. They pulled me out and I, um, I didn't have a heartbeat and I wasn't breathing. So people think that I had been dead for about 10 minutes. And to my good fortune, on an almost empty beach, as I got pulled out, there was a, a person walking by who was a nurse. And then another person walking by who was a doctor. Well, and they did CPR, and they brought me back to life. I woke up about two days later in an intensive care unit, but um, I was alive, but then I was paralyzed from the shoulders down. Um, I spent about two months in the hospital in a wheelchair and have been home now for about eight months and have had a very fortunate recovery to where I'm completely functional and independent and even starting to be athletic again. And I hope to be surfing in uh, just a couple of months, which is... So uh, you are out there body surfing and the next thing you remember is you wake up and you cannot move from here and down. Yeah, basically I have a memory of waking up paralyzed in the water and then losing consciousness again, which is uh, really intense. I was apparently... I was apparently conscious and in, in interacting with people for a couple of days, but my concussion was so bad that I lost maybe three days worth of memory. And so really my first early memories were just in the intensive care unit. From the moment I could move again, I resumed painting. I dragged canvases and supplies into my hospital room. And as I became stronger, eventually I was able to hold the brush on my own. The strained, the marks were finally mine again. Well, yeah, so I imagine, no, I don't imagine because I can't imagine, but you, this is where you need to pull all your resources together, everything that you've learned in right. athletics from studying, from mm -hmm. your arts. Yeah, and, you know, I have been now telling my story to people. I've been speaking publicly and, and doing some uh, motivational speaking. And I feel compelled to do so because a lot of the frameworks that I have collected over the years through my different activities and have had to refine as new challenges arose, um, they were there for me. And I found myself surprisingly well equipped to meet the most intense challenge of my life which is having my entire body taken from me and my life briefly taken from me and i was able to you know really meet the challenge head on and i mean it sounds 
self-congratulating for me to say it, but if you talk to people that were there at the time and interacted with me in those early days when I was in the hospital, for some reason I was just kind of unyieldingly positive and um, optimistic and had a lot of levity and laughter. And, you know, the nurses there say that they see two types of people in the hospital and it's, it's those that believe that they will heal and those that don't. And the way that their stories play out, it's almost that they fulfill their own destinies. And I was probably one of the few people to ever walk out of the hospital after a spinal cord injury. I'd say the doctor who had been working there 20 years had maybe seen one other person do that. I walked out on crutches, but I did walk out on my own two feet. And while I will always acknowledge the science and the luck of the type of injury I had and the support of my family, I do think a small part of it was also the framework with which I approached it, mm-hmm. um, which was, again, as an athlete. Wow. Very, very inspirational. So oh, when you go you. out and make speeches at universities and stuff, you have this framework you talk about? The framework that I've been talking about is um, around this poem that I love by a woman, Nayira Wahid. So she's African-American, and it's the poem is really a message to her community about how to persevere for a long struggle. At the time that I found it, I was very deeply depressed in residency, and I saw it as a recipe for what we needed for our own personal resilience. And eating water is about the nourishment that we need for a journey. And eating stars is about the psychologic importance of orienting ourselves towards a vision. So using those two concepts, um, I encourage people when they're to eat stars, which is be vision oriented rather than goal oriented. When we see something that we're striving for as a finish line, it encourages us to believe that our our sense of value and accomplishment can only come from that moment of arrival, from the moment of achievement. And when we believe that, then we're very tempted to start sacrificing our needs in the moment, to, to start denying our daily requirements for the sake of this future moment. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, very, it's a very fragile form of motivation because... Uh, when unexpected things happen, which they will, because we can't control the future and we can't control the world around us, um, all of a sudden we feel unfairly um, blocked, you know, and then and then we get exhausted and frustrated and burned out. We feel like the finish line has been moved or there's been this unexpected challenge. Um, and so while we should, you know, we should be inspired by a vision, we shouldn't believe that holding on to the promise of accomplishment will be sufficient to motivate us for the long journey. So instead, um, I encourage people to fundamentally reorienting ourselves to see and recognize process and progress. And that that's something that we can acknowledge in each day. And in doing that, we actually have a way of living our daily life that nourishes us and gives us energy, despite what's happening externally. And the combination of those two can really unlock us and allow us to be fully present and fully engaged in a long effort, yet resilient to unexpected challenges. So have a vision rather than a finish line and um, focus on process and progress. Nice. You know, and that can be whether you exemplified certain values. So, um, you know, 
exercise patience, exercise self-forgiveness, um, you know, stayed, uh, basically made space for both your project and yourself. So I always say like, you know, eating well or doing a daily meditation practice, that's a moment of success. Yeah. And then it's about not depleting yourself, I guess. Exactly. I mean, recognizing that you need to meet life in a way that allows for indefinite effort. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's really the balance that we should care about where we're going, but we can't only care about where we're going because we won't last otherwise. And also when we're process oriented rather than finish line oriented, it allows us to be agile, you know, allows us to respond to new opportunities and not be so beholden to a need to get to some place, you know, because sometimes then maybe that's not the best thing. Like we could be fighting against a, a real opportunity in another direction that we're ignoring because we're so finish line focused. Mm -hmm. I think that's an awesome image to have. <laughs> Your background is in medical science. So mm -hmm. You know a lot about what right. injury means and what your odds are. But you've also been to India, and did you ever go seek some more of what we would define maybe as woo-woo kind of stuff? Yeah, yeah, the woo, um, because there's a lot of woo in San Francisco. No. <laughs> you know, I'm not anti-woo. <laughs> uh, you know, it's a balance. Uh, you know, I was having acupuncture multiple times a week. Uh, I do massage therapy. I've had some energy work done. I would say that um, as a as a patient with a severe injury or a chronic illness, for anybody listening that deals with that, there's always a balance between living life and healing yourself. It's very easy to get into a mentality where our sole identity is as a person healing, which is really centering our identity around being broken right. and that needing to be fixed. Yeah. And at some point, we need to acknowledge that no matter how our body is, we're still whole, we're still capable, and we're still powerful. And so I try to strike that balance. You know, now I do some massage therapy and I do personal training like four to five times a week, and I'm fairly disciplined about my diet. Those are my personal investments in my body mm -hmm. and things that I've kind of shaved away. I no longer do the acupuncture. Um, I don't do energy work anymore. You know, some other more specific types of therapy I've let go, mostly because I just don't want my life to be shuttling between doctors. Right. You know, I, I just want to live. Um, and so that's been that's been my own personal answer. I, uh, I think I've read somewhere you're talking about the sameness, even with, with a, like a complete uh, 180 of your life or whatever you call that. Right that there's still a sameness that that follows you that is constant and that you 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 are using this right yeah i'd say one of the insights that i took from you know having a, a relatively normal life one day and then having this catastrophic injury the next is how similar my choices were before the injury and after the injury I see that life has these buckets of experiences, whether it's, you know, things we can do and things we can't do, um, things to be appreciative of, things to be frustrated by, people who love us, um, people that we're in conflict with. What fills those buckets as a new quadriplegic or a lottery winner? It, you know, it's different, but there will always be a relationship to, um, to a limit. 
You know, there's things that we can't know that we can't control. Things are always going to change. We don't know the future. That's, that's a constant, you know, so a year before I was finishing out residency at Stanford, um, seemingly from the outside at the top of my game. And I was emotionally bankrupt. I was completely exhausted and more depressed than I'd ever been. And I had to have a coming to terms and did manage to turn it around and finish in a good headspace, which is kind of another story. But a year later, I woke up paralyzed and I had more laughter, levity and optimism than almost any other time in my life. And that having those two experiences pressed against each other made me realize that we are overly focused on our external world to determine how we feel internally, that whether we know it or not, we convince ourselves that it's this delicate constellation of the things around us that's making us happy or unhappy. Mm -hmm. And the truth is, if any of us go through a catastrophic experience, whether it's financial or, you know, you have a house fire and you lose all your possessions or you have a, a, a new injury, one of the empowering things is realizing that so much of what you thought was precious and needed for you when it's taken and you wake up the next day and you're still the same person and you still have the capacity to be frustrated. You still have the capacity to be happy and appreciative and that it's our orientation rather than our external circumstances that determine whether we meet life with frustration or grace. That's a very useful perspective to to any athlete, but mm -hmm. all athletes are going to go through a phase of transition into life after sports. And mm. for many, many, many of us, myself included, this phase is, is hard because there's this uh, change of identity at mm -hmm. another level than yours. But uh, mm -hmm. but it's, it's the same principle. If, if you can come to that conclusion, hey, I'm still the same. <laughs> right. Yeah, exactly. I mean, a change of identity... I mean, what that would presume is what we do is who we are, and that's not the case. You know, for example, while neither of us may be skiing now, uh, we still have the identity of an athlete, much more flexible than I think we would give ourselves credit for. That's something that I would emphasize to any professional or competitive athlete, that the mentality that you've honed through your activity is your single greatest resource, and it's also almost universally applicable to anything else. And it's so powerful. It doesn't need to only be expressed through a physical activity. It can be that same mentality of whatever, whatever framework got you to the level of physical and athletic performance can be applied in a business sense, can be applied in an academic sense. Like, I would say it's one of the most powerful frameworks that we have as individuals. And with that comes this, the story that we're telling ourselves as well. Because your story could easily be, my life is not worth living anymore because I can't mm -hmm. do the same things that I could, used to be able to mm -hmm. do and I have to change everything. I'm not myself. Right. But that's not the story you're telling yeah. yourself. Whether you mm -hmm. did that on purpose or not, I don't know. But Yeah, I mean, even now, I mean, I move quite fluidly, but I don't have feeling in my hands. I don't have very good balance on the right side of my body and I can only lift about five pounds over my head with my right arm as opposed to, you know, 50 or 60 before. And a lot of my life I was invested in the idea that I was a strong and capable and athletic individual. I'm still recovering. 
The right side of my body is still weak, and I have almost no sensation or coordination in my hands, but honestly, I don't care. Athleticism is not an objective state. You can be athletic at any level. Even though I can only lift five pounds, like maybe next week I'll lift seven and a half pounds. You know, how far can I get? Like how many reps can I do with my five pounds? You know, how high can I lift my arm today? You know, will I move my right foot today? Yeah. Uh, will I walk more? Will I be able to run? You know, will I be able to surf again in any way? And so it's that curiosity of what am I capable of? Um, and that and, growth mindset uh, that you you actually might be able to exactly. change. It. <laughs> I mean, I think that's a great. I think that's a great way to sum it up. It's a growth mindset, and that never goes away. And um, while it might not be now objectively impressive to other people, because you know everybody can lift five pounds, like I can't, and so it feels really rewarding to just engage in that and have that mentality. And then the other thing is letting go of the idea that we have to be able to do everything to be happy. First, that's not true. Everybody in their lives have things that they can and can't do, have things that are available to them and are not available to them. In my life, it's very visible now. Because Our, you could do anything, basically. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, it, it's, but I have very real physical limitations, and, um, and it also might limit my ability to practice medicine again. You know, I still I still can't go back because I don't really have dexterity in my hands, which is necessary. I trained for 10 years to be a doctor. Now, I don't know what's next. Will I be able to practice medicine? Will I get back in the water? What's going to happen with my body? I don't know. I guess life was always uncertain. I don't see much of a separation between how I'm making my art and how I'm living my life. I'm constantly confronting uncertainty. You know, early on in my injury, I let go of the idea of waiting to be normal again. Yeah. You know, or waiting to heal to feel okay. And instead embraced a mentality that being able to do something is enough to be able to be a full person and to be powerful. Instead of focusing on what's not available to me, starting with the curiosity of what I can do and moving with that. And so what I can do right now is I can make art. And so for the last six months, I've been just fully investing myself in artistic practice and I have two studios now. I've had multiple shows. I work with a gallerist, and this last month I cleared over $15,000 in art sales and managed to support myself. Congratulations. Yeah, and it's, I think without the provocation of a physical injury and the inability to do anything else, I would have never given myself the luxury of fully going for it. And so while I would never opt in to having a spinal cord injury. Definitely not a box I would check. <laughs> it has not been in a negative experience. You know, we're talking because of the spinal cord injury. I am now a successful artist because of a spinal cord injury. I'm getting paid to speak at uh, large companies because of a spinal cord injury. Like my life has blossomed in a way that I could have never expected. And it's blossomed also because I allowed it to, mm -hmm. because I saw potential rather than limitation.
I think that's a great challenge to anybody listening. Like start with what you can do rather than what you wish you could do and, and move with that and give yourself to it. You know, as an artist, lines and boundaries create shapes and shapes are the precondition for beauty. And so the limitations in our lives are kind of like the lines that create a beautiful life and uh, a life with shape and direction. Nice. <laughs> I'm, I'm also trying to be a poet. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you're getting there. <laughs> I, I have in my notes somewhere. Um, yeah, you said the canvas is treated as an arena for action mm -hmm. rather than a window for representation. Mm-hmm. What do you mean by that? Right. So the type of painting I do for anybody curious is um, it's a style called action painting. We all have limitations. And that's what I'm exploring now with my painting, the limits of my body. The focus in action painting is how the painting is created rather than what the painting looks like. And so you think about Renaissance painting where you're looking at a, a pastoral landscape or you know some, like, some people laying on a bed, it's, The canvas is treated as a window to another time or place or emotional state. Um, with action painting, the canvas is treated as an arena to act on. And so it captures the after aftermath of an artistic moment. So my style of art, I do rituals or activities or motions in repetition until my body fails. And I capture that process of the decay of energy and ability on the canvas. And that's what makes the art piece. And, um, Ooh, like a repetitive gesture. Yeah. For example, um, I'll tie, um, I'll tie a weight around my disabled arm and I'll lift it again and again and again until my arm doesn't work anymore. And so what you'll see is a lot of vertical lines that become shorter and shorter and shorter. So it's uh, kind of making that fatigue visible in a way. <laughs> exactly. And also the echoes of athleticism of a curiosity to find a personal limit. There's something else that I've been, you know, and this is, this is getting a little bit more woo um, <laughs> to, to bring it full circle. You know, I have no memory of what happened when I, when I briefly died. It's like movie real cut and then the movie real started. There is this absence, like a very deep, profound absence in my life. And that absence and that void has been the most definitive experience I've ever had. And so there's this very interesting juxtaposition between something that's been profoundly influential, yet is a space and an emptiness. And while I have no cognitive memory of it, my body feels different. My body has a memory of it. And not in like, I, you know, obviously I have an injury, but in one step beyond that, mm -hmm. that I feel different having touch this other space. And there's a lot of feminist theory out there that talks about the body's memory. And I think that interplays into maybe athletic experience as well, that essentially there's wisdom to live the experience. There's wisdom to embody the experience. And whenever I'm doing these rituals and motions, at some point it becomes very, very uncomfortable. And Uh, the mind just turns off. And I think as athletes, we can all relate to that moment where the mind turns off and you're just sort of purely present and it's just effort in motion. And I believe at that moment, the body is given space to talk in its own language. And I would hope that, or I'm curious if 
the death imprint that's on my body is given space to come out. And so I see my art pieces as kind of an active excavation of my body's memories Mm -hmm. and believe that in some of my paintings, there's like the traces of a death imprint. We actually had a sports psychologist on the show talking about uh, trauma and how mm-hmm. that leaves imprints. And mm-hmm. he was talking about a technique that they use called brain spotting, mm. which is kind of a way to get into that conversation between the body and the unconscious. <laughs> and yeah, yeah. Clear the trauma, in, so to speak. Yeah, I, I think something that I've been exploring is just honoring my body's needs in in a physical way and then in, I don't know, spiritual, I don't know if that's the right word, but in this other way. But that, that could very well be, no, I'm totally out of my own <laughs> expertise yeah, yeah. here, but he was talking about how where we look affects how we feel because there's mm-hmm. like that physical link. Mm-hmm. And I can see how your gestures, painting, mm-hmm. can somehow go into that feeling and treat trauma that way. It seems to be yeah. the same mechanism. Absolutely. A very Eurocentric and Western view of the relationship between the body and the mind is that the mind controls the body, that it's sort of a one-way street. I think some uh, feminist theory and and, embodied practice theory says that it's actually a two-way street, that the way we move and hold our body changes how the mind feels as well. And, you know, there's business coaching around how we stand and how we hold ourselves and power poses. And I think there's even very accessible evidence to anybody that this is true. And the question is, like, how nuanced does it get? You know, how deep down that rabbit hole do we get? But I think just engaging this way of seeing your body and mind that they both have independent experiences and they can both communicate with each other in both directions is opens up a lot of possibilities. And I think that's the space that I'm exploring with my art right now. Yesterday was a big day for me. I just did an art piece around getting in the ocean again. So I entered the ocean the first time since my injury. Yesterday? Yeah, last night. And so I did a ritual with it where we had a canvas and there's a large circle. And on one side of the circle was the ocean and on the other side was the canvas. And I did it at the place that I died, which is actually just a couple blocks from my house. And um, I basically walked into the ocean and sort of baptized myself and then came out and laid on the canvas and then stood stood up and walked back into the ocean and uh, did that in repetition for about an hour. And it's, you know, it's about 50 degree air, 50 degree water. And so there's um, a small amount of (laughs) hypothermia involved and, you know, uh, an interesting relationship. Again, this kind of athletic approach of taking my body to a point of, of strain and endurance. But it was it was really meaningful. Uh, besides feeling cold, obviously, mm-hmm. did, does going to that place bring back something? Yeah, you know, right before I started, I was kind of kneeling and just having a moment, and really this flood of emotions came out. I think um, it was one of the first times that I was able to fully process having died and so it was very emotional and then the first few laps it was a very foreign experience because my body feels different now since the last time I was in the ocean and so there was a lot of conflict but after like the third or fourth time my body started to really remember how to work with the current and the swell and it became very enjoyable and a really positive experience and after the whole thing was done I was just so happy and felt great 
That's so nice. What about you selling your art? The mm -hmm. people who buy, do they like? Do they know your story and? Yeah, most of the people who've bought my art know my story, know me personally or through another friend. And I think people purchase it for different reasons. I mean, I would say that a lot of our relationships to possessions is we see them as disposable mm -hmm. and interchangeable. Like there's just very cheap consumer goods available and we're just constantly buying and disposing. But to own something completely unique I think has some meaning. And also it's, you know, it's a part of my story. I think people are buying a part of this journey. Yeah. Please buy my art. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> But I guess it adds another dimension if you understand where it comes from. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the story is always an important dimension of any achievement, I think. And I think that's something I try to make a part of my artistic practice is making the story and the process visible. I think a lot of art is completely removed from people's personal lives. It's seen as unprofessional to have personal sentiment in your artistic practice. You know, it has to be very theoretical. And a mentor of mine just gave me the advice to embrace my story. And so I've found this thread where it is extremely personal to me. But, you know, I also think that I make an effort to be very rigorous as an artist. You know, I, I read a lot. I understand other artists that have done similar things. And in art, you pursue these lines of inquiry of a question. In mine, it's really exploring this relationship of presence and absence through action art, which I think isn't something that has been done that much. And so I do think it's a, a new addition to this line of artistic practice. And that's also what makes it very rewarding. You know, I take it seriously. And a part of my weekly practice is research. Yeah. So I'm always learning about new artists and art history and art theory. And um, maybe that skill development still is from your athletic background. Yeah, yeah it's again that growth mentality. There's ways of making art that would be easy. Mm -hmm. I'm not doing that. <laughs> you know, it's very challenging. And it's actually only satisfying to me if it is challenging, if I know that I have pushed myself. And I think one of the reasons that art and athletics seem so similar to me is they're very open-ended. You know, how do you know that you're an excellent athlete? There's no objective bar. It's a sentiment inside of you. It's really a knowledge that you're authentic with your effort, that you have invested deeply. And that's something that really only you know, and only you can tell yourself. And the same is with art. You know, it's such an open-ended endeavor that the only way that I know I'm doing well is based on how I feel internally. You know, I think every athlete knows when they've cheated themselves and they've backed off of a workout or haven't, you know, and you just don't sleep well. You just get angry and frustrated and know that you can do better. And I have a lot of those similar emotional experiences with art practice as well. Your story is just so inspirational for anybody who needs to, who wants to or needs to repurpose themselves or mm -hmm. are in a situation where you need to reinvent yourself or want to reinvent yourself because you're taking so many things from your past with you mm -hmm. but you're not being stuck in your past right yeah and look at where it's taking you <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's amazing thank you i'm so happy you want to share this story with the show and our listeners if people want to go check out your art do you have like a web page or do you share? yeah so it's my name matthewetchler.com and uh, my instagram account is nhwartist 
and there's links to my webpage from there as well. And uh, yeah, anybody that wants to reach out and chat, I'm always happy to have a conversation and, and love connecting with people. So there's a way to contact me on my webpage. And yeah. Thank you so much. I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this and, and sharing so generously everything that has happened to you and being an inspiration to all of us, I think. Well, thank you. It was my pleasure. We will always have our values, our ability to love, to arise to challenges at whatever level we're at. And if we can do like Matt and befriend and nurture that part of us that will always be within us, then we can stand stronger to face any situation with more happiness and more satisfaction. I would love to hear your comment on this interview even if it's in a private message. If you want to get notified whenever I upload a new show, do go ahead and subscribe to the show. I'll be posting lots more athlete stories, interviews with world-class sports insiders and experts, and valuable tips for athletes. If you have any fellow athletes or people who you think could benefit from listening to this, of course, I'd be very grateful if you'd share this podcast with them. Thanks again to today's guest, and I gotta say, I'm already looking forward to presenting you to another fabulous guest in the next episode of Athlete Story. So in the meantime, you take care, okay? Bye. Thank you for listening to Athlete Story. You are awesome. If you are yourself a world-class athlete or former, don't hesitate to come over on athletestory.com and check out more free stuff and resources to help you thrive in and benefit from your sports career. Dare to prepare. Then get yourself out there. Stay in touch.